This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the city of New York. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Rudy Leibel, Christopher J. Murphy Professor of Diabetes Research and Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. We'll be talking today about fat cells, why humans have adipose tissue, how fat is hardly the dumb storage depot for the body, but rather is engaged in a constant dialogue with your brain, the role your genes play in how hungry you feel, and your ability to resist that McDonald's ad you pass on the street, and how a patient encounter decades ago set Dr. Leibel down the path towards discovering and cloning the hormone leptin and so many other discoveries during his research career. Dr. Leibel, thanks so much for, for agreeing to talk to me today. I, you know, maybe we could start off. Your work, as I understand it, has focused over most of your career on fat mass, on adipose tissue. And, and so maybe just to ground us, what, why do we have body fat? What purpose does it serve? So I would say body fat could be viewed at least up to the point where serious brain development began as the critical element or a critical element in evolutionary history, so to speak, because adipose tissue or fat is a means of storing a lot of energy without incurring additional weight. So the density of calories in tissue fat is much higher than in muscle or liver or other organs. And we need the stored energy, or animals need the stored energy, in order to survive under difficult environmental circumstances and to ensure, at least in mammals, enough energy on board to support a fetus and to feed it after it's born. And adipose tissue permits this to be done. If we stored the equivalent amount of energy as liver sugar, liver glycogen, or muscle glycogen, we would weigh three or four times mm. as much as we do. We wouldn't be able to move around, and we would become the meal for some other animal in the environment. So adipose tissue really is evolution's answer to how do I store energy against two very critical environmental circumstances. One is survival when there isn't enough food around, and the other is, how do I make sure that if I incur a pregnancy, and this gets very important with animals that have very limited number of progeny, how do I know that if I carry that animal or that fetus to fruition, that I'll be able to feed it? And adipose tissue is the answer to both of those mm. questions. So that growing out of that is the very important, at least to me and people with whom I work, question of how it's regulated. And a lot of the research that I do is based on trying to understand the regulation of body fat. So there's a common, I think, misperception that somehow body fat is there and it grows or shrinks and sort of does whatever it's going to do. But that's incorrect. And it, it turns out, of course, that body fat is regulated through the brain because the only way to get additional calories into an animal is to eat the calories and have them disposed of in adipose tissue or in other organs. So the regulatory systems in the brain for controlling energy intake and expenditure are exquisite and are tuned, again, to survival and pregnancy or gestation. So does that, does that imply that, you know, in some ways that I think many of us think of adipose tissue as basically just being like a dumb storage medium. It's, it's a, you know, it's a way of storing those calories and getting you through these hard times or preparing your body for arduous events like pregnancy. But it sounds like it's actually a lot more complicated than that. It's a great deal more complicated. And again, most of my career has been spent, or at least the research aspects of it, in trying to discern and describe the way in which this regulatory process occurs. And it turns out, and this is some of the work that I did earlier, that adipose tissue actually secretes molecules. In addition to releasing the fat that's needed for energy, it also releases hormones and a variety of these. Probably now 
the count is up to 15 or 20 mm. that affect metabolism. And the critical one that I worked on early was the one that we were looking for that could account for the way in which body fat signals the brain with regard to how much of it there is and based upon which the brain can decide I need to eat, I need to slow my metabolism down, I need to do other things to make sure that those two critical elements in evolution, survival and reproduction, are successful at least as a as a species. And that hormone turns out to be the hormone leptin hmm. that was cloned, collaborators and I cloned when I was at Rockefeller in uh, 1994. And that really opened the field up in terms of looking at adipose tissue in the way that you just didn't describe it. You described it as a dumb storage depot. And that, I think, was a pretty accurate description of the view of it before the discovery and description of leptin physiology, because leptin gave the lie to the idea that adipose tissue is a, um, a static depot, so to speak. And what was discovered in leptin is how the adipose tissue, or at least one of the ways in which fat talks to the brain. And that opened up a lot of other discovery in terms of what systems in the brain actually do this. There was a, a fair amount of animal literature that suggested that the brain had effects on body weight and energy expenditure, but the mechanisms by which they spoke to each other, the communication was completely opaque. And those discoveries actually have opened up, I think, not only a lot in terms of brain biology and the regulation of food intake and energy expenditure, but have also recast interest in fat as a signaling depot as well as a calorie depot. And it turns out that's also a very rich area of study and very important. Right. I mean, it's fascinating to think that um, not only is the brain regulating, you know, the way your body stores and how it stores the fat and how much fat it stores and under what circumstances. But the idea that your fat is talking back to your brain, um, and it's actually a two-way conversation, uh, you're saying that wasn't understood, that essentially wasn't understood until, like, during our lifetimes? Correct. That was not appreciated or understood. The adipose depots were looked upon as, as we were, as you sort of characterize them, as more or less dumb, at least in terms of physiology, but a very smart solution, as I was pointing out, to the question of how to store energy. And it was the issue of how the energy stores are regulated that got me and others interested in signals from adipose tissue. And now, if you look at the textbooks, they'll not only tell you that adipose tissue secretes many molecules that are not burned as fuel, but are actually used to communicate with other systems and other cell types in the in the body but that those molecules influence many metabolic processes mm. such as inflammation which is of great interest sugar homeostasis glucose insulin homeostasis and actually talk to cells in the circulation and draw them into fat in a way that also relates to some of this signaling. It's a, it turns out, and I guess in retrospect, not particularly surprisingly, that this is a very complicated and in sort of technical terms overdetermined. That is, that it is so critical to survival, we should have known that there was going to be some very fancy mm. physiology, wiring, and cell biology, and those are still early days, actually, in terms of understanding them. And I would give as an example of this, when we did the work on leptin and some of the early work on the signaling, we were interested, or thought we were interested, primarily in those areas of the brain that are often referred to as vegetative or homeostatic. And it turns out this is a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is at the base of the brain, just above the pituitary, the sort of master regulator gland. And it does talk to adipose tissue or adipose tissue talks to it. 
and does regulate some of the very basic aspects of food intake and energy expenditure. But all of us know that what drives food intake is not as simple as what your adipose tissue actually needs for survival or reproduction. People manage and quite happily to overeat relative to what adipose tissue needs. And one of the areas I think of great interest that um, is under very intense investigation now are these other parts of the brain that clearly are being spoken to by elements in the body, including adipose tissue, that influence what we refer to again in the field as hedonics, meaning the attractiveness of food rather than its representing a necessity for survival. And clearly, in case of humans, a lot of food intake is not driven by vegetative needs alone. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the weight loss industry and all the other things sure. that go with it. So these other areas of regulation of food intake, which are also reflected in the behavior of animals. So we see this kind of behavior in mice and use them as a model for this, I think is the new frontier in terms of the field that I work in, that is the understanding of these higher brain areas in terms of regulation of, again, what we refer to as hedonics as opposed to vegetative. Right. Because, I mean, otherwise you'd imagine it was less complicated. If it wasn't implicated in so many different parts of the brain and so many different parts of the body, then everybody living in similar, like every upper middle class person living in Manhattan in 2022 would in the same environment and therefore theoretically would have similar amounts of adipose tissue stored. But obviously just that's clearly not the case. Absolutely true. And that's what we're trying to understand. So I would say two of the approaches that we're taking that are related, or maybe three actually, one is to understand the physiology that I alluded to in terms of the brain regulation and talking to adipose tissue and other organs. It turns out other organs do talk to the, to the brain as well, and it certainly talks back in terms of homeostatic or metabolic regulation. But not surprisingly, we're trying to understand the genes that underlie these processes in these various organs, including adipose tissue, which was the one from which we cloned the leptin gene, but there are many other genes that influence this, the majority of which are actually expressed in the brain. Hmm. And we're trying to understand how those genes and their interactions with, again, what's technically termed development. So we're very interested in what is it about a gestation itself and what is it about early feeding experiences in a human, for example, that interact with genetic predisposition one way or another, ultimately to influence what you just described, which is the fact that if we go out onto Broadway, just down the street here, everybody doesn't look like they were cookie cut from the same dough. I mean, there's wide variation. And the wide variation is a derivative of the interaction of those genes with developmental processes and specific aspects of the environment that determine this spread, if you will, of fatness. And again, from an evolutionary point of view, that's a very good thing to have in a population because against the possibility of some kind of environmental catastrophe, you want a range of body sizes Mm to be able to ensure the survival of the species. So species that tend to limit their fat storage or limit other aspects of their ability to interact with the environment are mostly in the fossil record. Hmm. So again, I often tell people this or try to reassure obese individuals that they represent actually in terms of their biology, the interactions that I spoke about, but in terms of evolution, they're our best hope Hmm. for making it into, you know, the next millennia or two or three, when the environment clearly will revert in one way or another to some sort of circumstance that's not necessarily fully beneficial to us as a species, it's, it, I mean, I, I, don't know, I don't think it's a great insight to say they may be the ones that carry us forward. It's fascinating because I think 
the feeling of a, like I think of myself as someone who likes spicy food. I think of mm-hmm. myself as someone who likes uh, fatty food. I love you know pork and and like like slow cooked pork, not the dry. Un- oh yeah. Like what's a pork chop? Like I want right. the pulled pork. Yeah. Um, and I think of myself as you know I feel hungry because I'm hungry. Um, and I think what your work gets to is not only like how the the fat talks to the brain and the brain talks to the fat, but but to some way it touches on like what it means to what what it means to be the people we think we are, um, and what it means to have a personality that we that we think we have. And it sounds like it's actually even that's more complicated as it relates to f- our relationship to food. Yeah, I th- I think I I I like your formulation, and I think that what we're basically talking about is that the tendency of individuals to relate their behaviors to relatively simple processes. Um, When you talk about things like food intake and energy expenditure, these are so critical to survival that, again, as I mentioned earlier, they're very heavily overdetermined. And what we interpret as relatively simple interactions with the environment are actually driven by these much more complex processes, many of which we're not fully or even at all conscious of. So you're getting, I think, at what I would describe as a sort of metaphysical interpretation of energy homeostasis. And I think that's the right perspective. It's not a simple... um, psychological process of people who simply, quote, like to overeat, or people who have other historical relationships to specific food types. It is it is a very complex neurobiological, neurophysiological process that expresses itself through these very or relatively simple sort of models in our own minds or the way we explain our behavior, but are driven by much more complex processes of which we are, in a sense, the expressors. Again, I I think it's important to consider the evolutionary importance of this. It all ultimately boils down in evolution to whether you can survive in the environment you're in, and that's critical, obviously, to the most important fact, which is, can I reproduce? Mm. And that's it. I mean, that's what, that's how evolution acts. And in terms of energy homeostasis, it's done a lot of things to make sure that those behaviors are tunable to a whole range of environments. So what people attribute to all sorts of relatively simple models, well, this is what my mother fed me, or this is what people that live in my part of the country eat. Yeah, that's, it's not that it's not true, but it doesn't, it's not dispositive with regard to what's going on in terms of this biology, which is extremely complex. And you can really see that when you, when you look at some of the gene behaviors that drive how eating goes haywire in some ways. I mean, I was interested in in Prader-Willi syndrome, which I know you've worked on for a long time, but where, um, you know, it's hard to come up with a logic for why that level of interaction with food is a beneficial behavior. Um, but maybe you could describe, like, how... Talk about Prader-Willi syndrome, for instance, and, like, what is it and, 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 and how fundamentally does it change people's lives and how does it work? Prader-Willi syndrome um, is a... Uh, describes a very characteristic phenotype of mass, very extreme obesity, disorders of the autonomic nervous system, which is the one that controls sweating and Mm -hmm. things like that, Um, changes in the shape of the face and changes in the shape of the hands, which tend to be small influences on the integrity of the endocrine system that controls the gonads, the maturation of the gonads, both male and female, and the system that controls the pituitary in terms of growth and growth hormone. These very complex 
set of um, characteristic phenotypes. These individuals are not hard to identify when you see them. They are, it occurs roughly one in every 20 or 25,000 births, so it's very relatively rare. Classically, in the majority of cases, it's due to deletion of this region of chromosome 15. And these infants are born floppy and sometimes rather small and, ironically, extremely difficult to feed. Hmm. So they don't like to eat. They have to be very carefully handled and fed. Their suck is very weak. And many times the diagnosis is made now using genetic testing quite early because of that behavior. And then, quite surprisingly, the when these children reach the age of three or four years, and they can be male or female, um, they become hyperphagic, meaning they begin to eat enormous amounts of food to the point where they need to be restrained and the household has to be set up mm. in such a way as to make it difficult or impossible for them to get access to food. Otherwise, they become enormously obese. So this is an example of a hyperphagia, which informs us to some extent about the genetics of the regulation of food intake. Um, but in, in, in and of itself is a very special case, I think. I, I would say, again, without getting into the weeds, as we say on this, I don't think that the majority of relatively milder human obesity is necessarily due to derangement of those genes, but they do, the, the syndrome itself does show us what happens when elements of the system are completely disrupted. Right. And you mentioned uh, <clears throat> leptin earlier. As, as a, so before we get into the sort of discovery of leptin, which I think is super interesting, and I want to hear about that too, um, how many different ways can this, <clears throat> so far do we understand, like how many different ways do our, are there for our genes to disrupt sort of what we would consider to be quote-unquote healthy eating? Uh, you've mentioned Prater Willie, but I mean, is there right. like two or three more ways or is it dozens or hundreds? So I would say at the present time, and this is still a work in progress, that we know now about a dozen or 15 genes, which themselves, when sufficiently interrupted, and this has to do with the genetics of the way they're inherited, will by themselves produce individuals with profound obesity, generally not quite as severe as Prader-Willi, but the gene absence alone or the malfunction of the gene alone can account for rather significant or I would say severe obesity. Having said that, those genetic differences probably account for less than in the aggregate five or seven percent of all human obesity. They represent relatively rare disruptions of the system, so to speak, but teach us in the same way that the Prater-Willi does about the elements of the system. It's as if, you know, failure teaches us where the critical control nodes are. And we know now about 15 or 20 of these genes. And we also know that there are many other genes whose influence is much weaker than these single genes that I've pointed out, that in the aggregate, we know based on studies of twins, probably can account for somewhere between 50 and 70% of the variation in human fatness in a given environment, as you pointed out earlier. But the these experiments of nature, so to speak, where a single gene is taken out, teach us what the Regula what, what the nodes of the regulation are. And again, I would emphasize, unlike leptin, actually, which is sort of, in a way, one of the fathers or mothers of this sort of insight, most of these genes are brain genes. Hmm. Hmm. So, so when you think of, you know, it's easy, I think, for lay people like myself and, and you know, the media to sort of blame the fact that when you walk down the street, you see a giant billboard, you know, right, uh, you know, right you know, the hospital, you see these billboards of like a giant, perfect looking double cheeseburger from, from McDonald's and a bunch of crispy fries. Um, 
But you're saying like 50 to 70% of the variation in, in uh, human weight um, in a given environment could actually be explained not by we're being tempted by the outside world, but actually by the way our brains are wired. Correct. And what we're talking about now is that 50 percent, 70% is the biological basis for our interaction with the environment that you just described. There are going to be individuals when they see that billboard who are going to be very, very tempted by what they see. And there are other individuals, and we all know them, who will look at it and not be particularly motivated by that sort of environmental stimulus. I was talking to um, Ian Lipkin, the yeah. faculty on a prior podcast, about some of these topics because in addition to just the you know our own genetics and and who we are um it's there's an increasing amount of evidence that viruses can actually change uh, some of this too and in some ways can similarly you know when you get a virus and you get a fever um or you get heart damage from a virus you go you know i had a virus and that gave me a heart defect but the idea that viruses may have may be implicated in things like depression um or in various, you know, autonomic disorders, or in autism, um, which then we think of as being fundamentally personality related. Um, I mean, I just, I, so I, I, I know you started your career as a as a clinician, um, treating, I think, primarily, if I remember correctly, um, obese adolescents, um, and and you, you know, when you were talking, you said early in your career, no one knew this stuff, so the kinds of advice you must like the role of a doctor at that point in time must have been complicated so i mean how how did you how did you, how was your experience being a clinician trying to treat this before all this was known i was trained as you alluded to as a pediatrician and endocrinologist and at the time patients with obesity were referred to endocrinologists because it was known, and it's still true, that there are a couple of endocrine disturbances that will actually cause a child to become obese. So low thyroid activity is an example of one of these, and overactivity of the adrenal glands is one of these. And I think what people, or at least referring physicians, used to pray is that we'd find one of those and be able to do something about it and otherwise sort of reverse the obesity. But in the vast majority of instances, this was not the case and is still not the case. Um, and I used to get referred or have referred to me children with obesity, and I, had, I would test them for these possibilities, generally not finding them. I was also very interested in the time at iron in iron deficiency for entirely other reasons and its effects on brain behavior or brain or behavior in children, and was actually referred a child with iron deficiency anemia who I ultimately discovered did have low thyroid as the cause of the problem, but never found a child obese as a result of this. You just reminded me of it. But what actually, I think, had a drastic effect on my career, I was very interested in studies that were being done at the time at Rockefeller in terms of the growth of adipose tissue, the fact that adipose tissue is comprised, as you would imagine, of many cells, and they are of different sizes, and as people get fatter, the cells get bigger. And I was interested in this biology and was referred again um, a child with, you know, pretty severe obesity. And mom came with this young man to see me. I remember it was evening time. I, I was for convenience of the mother, saw this child late in the day and examined the child and saw no clear reason, no endocrine reason for this, and began to explain to the mother that I really couldn't explain the obesity, that I could give some straightforward advice about diet that I couldn't really be too optimistic about, because if diet would control this alone, I was sure she had probably tried to deal with this herself. And I thought gave her a rather reasonable but um, modest description of what I thought if could be done, if anything. And she turned to the young man 
was, I guess, seven or eight years old and said, Randall, let's get out of here. This doctor doesn't know shit. <laughs> Whereupon she got up and took Randall, who I you might not be surprised to learn, never saw again. Uh, and I remember sitting in the sort of darkening clinical examination room and thinking to myself, this woman is absolutely correct. And either I stop trying to say anything about this or I do something about it. And I, I think it's literally the case that at that point I decided that's it. I'm going to either have to get out of this business or at least this part of it or commit myself to doing something about it. And without going into the details of this, I by chance within a month or two of this episode happened to be in New York City for a pediatric meeting and knew that this group at Rockefeller, Jules Hirsch, who was doing this work on adipose tissue, was there. And I walked across Manhattan, actually, through Central Park, which might not have been the smartest thing to do, (laughs) but I didn't know enough. I came from Boston. What the hell did I know? I walked into the Rockefeller University. They didn't have guards at the gate, as they subsequently did. Walked into the laboratory and asked to see Dr. Hirsch, unannounced. And he was out of town, but I talked to some of the people who worked in the lab and said that I was very interested in what they were doing and was, you know, would like to consider, if they would consider me, to come to work there. And again, without going into the details of this, within days, he Dr. Hirsch communicated with me and said, come back and I'll talk to you. And I did come back and I ultimately, within six months of the Randall episode, moved to New York City from a house in Brookline that was probably 4,000 square feet to an apartment in Manhattan that was 837 square feet with two daughters and a wife who I I, I have never ceased to thank my wife who <laughs> must have had some belief. I, I, I don't know. It might be more interesting to talk to her than to me about this, but we did it. And they, and I, it, it was an extraordinary experience. And I, I stopped seeing patients other than those that were being studied in clinical research and committed myself to trying to do something about this. And that was the beginning of my research career, which I often tell students or others who care to ask about it, like you have, I had no research experience at all. That is, I had not done bench research as a medical student. I had not done bench research as a fellow in endocrinology. I was totally unfamiliar with any of the sort of laboratory expedients that are required to do this and learn them on the job, as I did just about everything else that I have used going forward in this in the work that I do. I would say that none of it, or other than I think a very solid grounding in medical school in the biology of human beings for which I am eternally and forever grateful, but the predicates of what I do day to day either weren't known or weren't learned by me. Hmm. I don't know if this is an appropriate analogy, but like you mentioned earlier that the variations in human weight in some ways, like while it carries individual pain and individual problems as a, as a species, our survival sort of depends on that kind of variation. And, and uh, listening to your story, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, it, the, the, the clinical practice of medicine is constantly evolving in every field. I mean, we may know this is a fairly dramatic example over a 50 year time frame of what we know, but, but if you think back on the way cancer was treated, you know, 60, 70 years ago is the way it is now, or our understanding of the role of genetics. I'm talking to Wendy Chung tomorrow. Um, but, you know, understanding the role of genetics or understanding of psychiatry. Um, if, if no clinicians were interested in pushing the boundaries and trying to really understand things more deeply, we would be still practicing medicine the way we were 100 years ago. If every clinician stopped practicing medicine in order to push the boundaries of knowledge, um, we wouldn't even have the imperfect uh, ability to influence our lives in a positive way. But that sounds like a very transformative moment for you right there. I think transformative is a, is a proper 
description of it. And you're right. If everybody did the same thing, we would be impoverished in one area of this or another. And another, you reminded me in your comment of a, or in your statement of a comment that was made by one of the deans at uh, Harvard to the graduating class was, and I often mention this actually to the students here, the dean said, um, we've done our very best to educate you with regard to the biology and practice of medicine. However, it's going to turn out that half of what we've taught you is either totally incorrect or certainly not the best way to do things. He said, and the problem is that we don't know which half. (laughs) So I, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I often tell the medical students here is that some medical schools themselves are more dedicated to the idea of training the individuals who will push the boundaries, so to speak, as opposed to those who will apply the knowledge that is available. And I think that's altogether a fine thing, you know, that doctors need to think about both sides of this, obviously, and that doctors who are on one side or the other should be free to move across the boundary. And I consider that's what happened to me. I mean, I moved from somebody that was basically trained in applied biology and medicine to somebody that wanted to do some of the boundary work. And I'm forever grateful that Jules Hirsch and the Rockefeller were willing to take me on in this regard. President Bollinger talks a lot about this fourth purpose idea, the idea that that uh, it's not enough, to, I mean, it's, it's, it's important and it's necessary to be pushing the boundaries of knowledge and to having an impact uh, and to be uh, training the next generation of students and to be working with your community, um, but that we also need to be having an impact on, you know, human welfare. Um, and how do you feel like Columbia handles that balance between the clinical practice and the pushes or boundaries of knowledge. Like, has this been a supportive environment for you? I think this is a great environment for people like me who, at, at all stages, actually, of my career. In other words, Columbia would be very receptive and has instruments in place to allow a medical student, for example, to transition into laboratory work. And I've had two or three medical students come to work with me who have done extraordinary things in basic and applied research with no prior training or experience or ability to do this. And you might imagine that I would be particularly sensitive to individuals coming to me with this as a request. And I would say And again, I don't like to generalize too much, but I would say that the most outstanding investigators that I have had the privilege of working with, or certainly among them, are these walk-ons who have have been motivated by an interest in some aspect of this biology generally and been able to leverage it to make extraordinary, at least by my lights um contributions to the to the field you mentioned wendy chung who was a student of mine at rockefeller (laughs) so and walked into the lab i mean obviously not totally naive she was an md phd but i consider her to be one of my greatest acolytes if you will who learned this field along with me and again i would say that the greatest students are the ones that teach you the most you know i would say i've from my greatest students i've learned a hell of a lot more Mm. than i've given and that's why i'm always on the lookout for them because i'm always hoping that somebody will help to teach me a lot more than i already know and it's universally true and anyway i would emphasize and your question actually is interesting. I would say that at every stage of my career, meaning from transitioning to a basic and then applied or basic and applied research, all the way through my work in mouse biology, mouse genetics, and human studies, which of which I've done a lot here, Columbia has been a wonderful environment for for doing this. And I have never been impeded in any way. Far from it. I think the place has been really very supportive 
of efforts to do the kind of things that I do and to, and to train and help bring the next generation along, but also to deliver, try to deliver or through efforts on my part and others to deliver the fruits of this research to the individuals that you alluded to, meaning our, our um, constituency, clinical, academic, and, and otherwise. I think this has been a great a great, at least for me, and I think for many others, environment in which to do this, to do this work. I often, not often, but I sometimes, you know, I, I, I like to say that one of the things that is the, is critical for people that are in positions like the ones that I'm in now, which is more sort of, you know, oversight of research and, and, um, research at various levels is I'm in a position where it's important for me to look for the Johnny Unitas's, the walk-on quarterbacks who, and again, that may be a little old for some of the audience here, but Johnny Unitas was essentially a walk-on quarterback for the Baltimore Colts, who's arguably um, among the greatest, if not the greatest quarterback in the history of professional football. And the other individual that I often think about is Ramanujan, the great Indian um, mathematician who was a brilliant um, mathematician, discovered basically as a walk-on at the University of Cambridge by virtue of a letter that he sent to one of the mathematicians there who received those letters you know, many of them a week, people who thought they could square a circle or trisect a triangle, you know, an angle. And he read the work of this Ramanujan and said, this is a different, this is a different brain. I've got to bring him here, which he did. He actually brought Ramanujan to England. And I think it's, I think that's one of the things that I'm paid to do, actually, is to look for Johnny Unitas and Ramanujan among the people that either approach me or that I have access to, which that's our job, really. That's really interesting. uh, I don't consider myself Johnny Unitas or Ramanujan, but I was given a chance to play professional football by Jules Hirsch, is the way I look at it. (laughs) And others can judge at what level I played, but I was given a a chance that I think was, was priceless, at least to me. Well, and I want to come back, before I let you go, um, I want to come, you know, the, the podcast is called Columbia Invents. And yeah. I think, let's fo- focus on the invents part. Yeah. Um, but I know you've been associated with a huge number of breakthroughs in this field. And and I'd like to, maybe you could use Leptin as an example, but like, but, but those of us who are not scientists and not, don't spend our lives pursuing this kind of pushing the boundaries of knowledge, I think can easily think of the moment of invention as being, you know, you're stumbling around in the dark and then all of a sudden there's this eureka moment and everything becomes clear. And uh, you've, you've had these kind of breakthroughs a few times now. Um, and we've, you know, Leptin obviously has gone on to, to success and we've worked with you more recently on spinning up a startup company around your work on Prader-Willi syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does that moment of invention feel like? Is it a moment even, or is it an evolutionary process? Like, as the scientist, how does this, how does it feel to you at the time? Yeah, this is a this is <laughs> this is an interesting question. So, I think it's it's several things. There is or have been. I certainly can recall the eureka moments of seeing the proof, the evidence that the hypothesis or conception was correct. I can remember this quite vividly with regard to leptin, which had to do with the expression of the gene in adipose tissue and seeing differences in the level of expression between mice that we knew were mutant for the gene that was in the gene that was the candidate for this molecule it was very clear seeing that one experiment. That so this, you knew just from seeing you knew the data. from seeing that one experiment that we had got the right, that we had got the gene. But the work that went into it was I've, I've calculated this actually a hundred person years 
of effort over a decade to, f- to get the material together to be able to do the critical, the Eureka experiment. So it, it's, I think there are sort of three aspects to it. One is the conception. That is, is this an idea, meaning trying to clone a gene like this? Is the technology available? Is it an idea worth doing? And with regard to leptin, I would say I thought, and you know, my collaborators thought, that that's right. This was worth trying. Although at the time, I think the f- there, there was roughly a 50-50 view that this was technically not um, doable. And our hope was that the technology would move with it. When we applied to the NIH to get funds to do this, the funding was rejected three times because we were told, A, that it was not doable, B, that even if you could do it, so what? It would be a mouse fat gene or obesity gene. It wasn't clear, incidentally, that the gene was necessarily expressed in fat, although that's what one of the hypotheses. So this was an idea that was out there, I mean far out in terms of doing it, but one of the things that attracted me to it was the idea that the result would not be a statistical result. It would either be yes or no. You do have the gene, you don't have the gene. Genes are digital. You sequence them, you know that there's something wrong with the gene. It may be hard to show that it's related to what you're interested in, but there's no question, there's no statistical argument about whether that gene is mutated, even though we used heavy statistical approaches to isolating the position of the gene. So I was very intrigued by the idea of doing an experiment that would have an endpoint that was digital. And that's what, and I, and the idea of looking for what that molecule that talks to the brain is. There had been a series of experiments done by an investigator um, at the Jackson Labs, Douglas Coleman, that suggested there was something secreted from somewhere that was talking to the brain. So that's what gave us hope that we'd be able to find this gene somewhere. And it turned out, yes, that was right. Although I think the field as a whole thought this was not a doable thing. So first there's the conception. Then there's the being able or willing to stick to it to the point where you actually get the result, which is dispositive, the so-called eureka. So I would say it's a sort of a tripod. You have to have the conception. You have to believe in it strongly enough to go after whatever the amount of time or spend the amount of time to do it. And then you get, if you're lucky, you get the eureka moment. But by the time the eureka moment occurs, you might be a little bit pooped or tired (laughs) out, but it's still, it's a good feeling. And I've had a couple, I've had other experiments, as as your question implies, other experiments like that. For example, with Prater Willie, we did a, a series of experiments in stem cell-derived brain cells. We actually made human hypothalamic, this brain part that I mentioned earlier, brain cells from human skin cells, actually, to be able to test the hypothesis with regard to how the Prader-Willi phenotype arrives and derives. And I remember I described to you this very complex. And one experiment that was done in those stem cells pointed to a eureka kind of molecule. Now, I think it's going to turn out it's not a eureka in the sense of the total answer to Prater-Willi, but it was a eureka event in terms of seeing it similar in a way to leptin in that you, leptin's not the answer to everything. As a matter of fact, leptin as a unique cause of obesity is a handful of human beings, actually, but pointed importantly to the biology. But with both of these studies, both of which took a long time to do, the Prater-Willi was seven years, um, but they did have moments at the end where, you, where the hypothesis was fulfilled, at yeah. least of being able to say, yes, that's what we, we thought it was. There was another experiment that was done looking for the receptor to leptin, or what we thought was the receptor to leptin in a rat. And I can remember the x-ray film, which is how we used to look at uh, um, gene mutate. We don't do it that way anymore, no, no. being held up to a window and looking at it and saying, 
done. That's, That's it. So the, the, it happens. I mean, if you've, I think if you have a hypothesis, and maybe this is another way of saying it, if the hypothesis is really a critical, can be answered by an ultimately critical experiment, you'll get a eureka or a, or a no. Um, and a no is, is good, but it's not a eureka. It's very important, I think, conceptually to have the right idea about what the endpoint of the experiment is. If you're foggy in your own head about that, or you're foggy as a group about it, you're not likely to get a eureka. So I think you've actually made me sort of say something I hadn't thought about quite this way. But the conception is critical to getting yourself to a eureka. You've got to have something in which you know at the end you're going to see something or not that's going to answer your hypothesis. Well, and it, that's it, a very good point. Thank it you. It seems like, well, thank you. Thank you, Warren. <laughs> it's I think your answer. It's just my well, question. no, but I hadn't <laughs> thought of it quite that I way. I mean, it's it, and, and I, I think it's actually, you know, the movie version of this, there would be you thinking of the experiment and then a, a series of jump cuts. Right. And then the eureka moment. Right. And the idea that there were a hundred person years. And by the way, that was that was funded by the NIH in the end? Partly, yes. Okay. And the Prater really work I know was funded by a private foundation, and I also believe the NIH. Is that right? Correct. Um, so without that funding and without the passion and the dedication, like you could have gotten to ninety-eight person years and stopped. Correct. And no one would have made that movie. Correct. Like that. Uh, Correct. Or the movie might have been made later, and for other reasons. Right. Right. But but these these outcomes are these world changing outcomes require such a team effort and so much patience and passion and funding um, that it's easy, I think, to gloss over that. Well, you know what Edison said, or, or at least this is attributed to him, that genius is. 5% inspiration and 95% perspiration. Now, again, I don't mean to cast myself as an Edison, but it's absolutely true. You've got to have the right idea. In other words, if you're looking for something that'll light up a room without a flame, that's worthy of sort of thinking about. But you have to then be prepared to spend the perspiration to right. get there. And I think maybe people don't, or maybe some people don't fully appreciate the amount of difficulty and agony. And, you know, the over time, these are very difficult things to do for all sorts of reasons, getting funding, having people willing to spend the time and effort and commitment to do it, and all of the sort of personnel issues that you can imagine arise over time. But if the idea is good enough and strong enough, I think it's often compelling enough for others to be able to join the forces, so to speak. Right. Dr. Leibel, thank you so much for, for letting me well, talk to you today. My pleasure. I really enjoyed yeah. the conversation. You got me to think. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would say that's hard to do. So. <laughs> Thanks. Great. Thank you.